good morning again, True North. It's great to see you from kind of this side of the pulpit. If you started attending recently, or this is your first Sunday, first of all, welcome. It's great to see you. I see Dave back there. Welcome back. It's nice to see you. You don't get called out here every week. This happens once in a while. Uh, my name's Tyler. I'm the director of music and communication here at True North. Uh, and today I'm going to be speaking to you from the book of Exodus chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Exodus chapter 8. Every, all the scripture today is going to be on the screens if you didn't happen to bring your Bible or your device. We're in the middle of a sermon series titled Blood and Water. And we're walking through the book of Exodus verse by verse to see what the Lord has done and what he's going to continue to do today. This week we pick up with the story of Exodus as Moses, God's chosen representative to the nation of Egypt, is confronting Pharaoh with what will be the fourth of ten plagues against the Egyptian people. So let's go ahead and get into our text today. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 8, starting in verse 20. The Bible says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth." Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. So how many of you are born and raised Alaskan? Okay, there's a few of us. Okay, so I was born in southeast Alaska a town called Ketchikan. Many of you have been there. Uh, it is an island, and suffice it to say, the first 21 years of my life experience were, were not a varied one. It was mostly just like rain and fish. That was all we ever did. <laughs> well, if any of you have families in the eastern states right now, or if you've just been on like social media in the last month, you'll know that there is something really strange happening that we Alaskans probably have no experience with. We have no kind of way to comprehend this. This is something that happens once every 17 years, and if you guys know that number, you probably know what I'm talking about. So if you're not in the know, a few weeks ago, the eastern U.S. was just overrun by a brood of cicadas. They are like noisy, fat, ugly bugs they numbered in the billions, and they just, after decades, 13 or 17 years gestating in the ground, they arise from the earth, and they swarm over all, everything, and then they scream, which is crazy, <laughs> and then they mate, and they die. That's all they do. That's their whole life experience. Like, that'd be crazy, right? Like, if we went outside and went on a hike, and the gnats and, like, the noceums just screamed, you'd never leave the house. Well, so my wife and I were on social media the other night, and we're just watching the videos of people dealing with these things. 
And uh, the worst one, by, I'm not going to show you any videos today, but the worst one by far was a guy that was just like, he went out to his yard, and he's like, here's the, here's the good tree, and here's the bad tree, and there's just piles of dead, I'm assuming, cicadas all over the place. He goes, here's the bad tree, and the worst part was, he's like, okay, he's psyching himself up, he goes, okay, okay, I'm going to touch it, and he just sticks his hand into this pile of dead cicadas, and the sound, ooh, it was like dried pork rinds. And sadness? I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be fun to kind of just bring this to life to you for a little. I'm not going to show you anything. Uh, I thought it would be fun to just kind of bring the moment to life so we can kind of better understand the craziness of what we're dealing with today. Um, I just Googled. I Googled just some articles about these brood 10 cicadas. And I'm just going to read you the titles of these articles. And I'm going to let you just mentally fill in what people are dealing with right now. TheAtlantic.com says, millennials, you guys are going to hate this. The Atlantic says, unfortunately, some cicadas taste like nature's gushers. Do you guys know they're eating them? Do you guys know what gushers are? They're exactly what they sound like. If you didn't know they're eating them, now you do. And the worst part is that's not even the worst sentence you're going to hear today. TheCut.com says, bad news, which is a great way to start an article. Bad news, colon, I'm sorry for this. Bad news, cicadas pee a lot. I didn't know I had to worry about that. I'm really sorry. You can add that to my new list of fears. All right, so the reputable LiveScience.com, and you know it's reputable because it says science in the title. That wasn't even the joke. Live science. You're not ready for this next one. Some brood 10 cicadas will be sex-crazed zombies with disintegrating butts. That's the worst sentence you'll hear today. So this, I'm sorry. <laughs> this swarm of insects, it happens once every 13 or 17 years. It's making whole states go insane, from my point of view anyway, up here in Alaska. But I hope at least that will help us understand some of the craziness that's going on in our pasts today. Let's just go ahead and look back to the word. Let's get the taste of gushers out of our mouth. This passage, so Exodus 8 from the ESV translation of the Bible and many other translations, they call this plague, you'll probably see it as a header, the swarm of flies. But if you look back to the original language, there's not any actual indication specifically of just flies. The original Hebrew translates more specifically to swarms, so something swarming. I'm not telling you that to just lament poor translations. I think that Biblical translators did their jobs faithfully. There's actually a ton of reasons to think that this might be flies, but that's not really what's important to the passage today. It's not what they are, but it is what they're doing. The operative term here is at the end of the passage, verse 24, where it says, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms. In fact, if you go ahead in your Bible to Psalms, Psalm 78, in references to the plagues of Egypt, the psalmist says this, that God, quote, sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, them, the Egyptian people. We are not speaking strictly of something that's just like the gnats. If you guys were here last week, we talked about the plague of gnats. This is not like them, but bigger. 
These are swarming, assaulting, biting, eating little things that are ruining whole lands, and they're sinking their mandibles into human flesh. The swarms are in the Egyptians' beds, all over their floors and walls, and their cooking utensils. It's all over their skin, and they're terrorizing the Egyptian people with no sign of relenting. Today ends up being a very, very bad day for the Egyptians. But here's the cool thing. So I say Egyptians, specifically this time because this is the very first plague that has been discriminate, and I'll explain what that means. If we look back at verse 22, verse 22 says this, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. So this is a a big change from previous plagues. The first two were amazing. They were awesome in every sense of the word, even though the Pharaoh's not musicians, the Pharaoh's magicians, they could recreate them, at least their effects uh, in some way. Um, The third was so amazing that the magicians, they couldn't do anything about it. They said, this is clearly the finger of God. All three of these plagues affected both the Egyptians and the Israelites, but God does something that is so miraculous that now nobody can deny his power. Not a single Israelite was bitten. There just can't be any doubt anymore that God is at work here. Nature just cannot be accredited with the separation of Egyptian and Israelite. God separates his people's identity from that of their oppressors. He tells Pharaoh, these are not your people. You don't define them any longer. These people are mine. It may help you to remember that at this point, the Israelites have been suffering all alongside the Egyptians this whole time. They cursed Moses even for bringing judgment down upon them. They don't believe that God has their best interests at heart, just like you and I do all the time, if we're being honest. But God changes all of that today. He begins establishing his people and setting them apart for himself. Why does he do this now? Well, God tells Pharaoh that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Church, Jesus still does this for us. We see Exodus shows us a shadow here of something that will find its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read from the book of Galatians chapter 3. Now, starting in verse 26. You can turn there if you want. It'll be on the screens for you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, the Apostle Paul tells us this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. Jesus gives us a new identity in him. 
This is what Jesus does for us. He separates us from our oppressors. He comes to us when we are at our lowest, when our very identity is tied to the bonds of sin and shame. Jesus cuts those bonds, and he gives us a brand new identity. Think about what the Israelites have gone through in their recent history. The plagues are a culmination of generation of, and generation of Israelites just calling out indiscriminately for somebody to come save us, please. Their identity itself, how they see themselves, is wrapped up in their oppression. It's who they are. But when God separates Israel from the suffering of Egypt, he gives them an identity apart from Pharaoh's oppression. God sets apart his people so that they would find their identity in him alone, as his people no longer finding their worth in Pharaoh's selfish desires. No, God calls his people as his own, that he would be glorified and worshipped as the God of Israel, the living God. When Jesus saves us, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians tells us that we become a new creation. The old self passes away. It dies. We die to that old self. That identity doesn't even exist anymore. When this happens, we sever the ties to the things that we give our worship to and where we find our allegiances. If you've never experienced this, so if this is like your first Sunday in a church or you're catching in on a live stream and this is all really weird to you, if you are not, have ever not experienced being found in Jesus, there's a chance that Galatians 3, it may sound negative to you. It may sound to you like you have to give up your individuality for the sake of being a Christian. Church, we are afraid that the gospel cannot bear the weight of our identity. It's as if we need to add other things to the gospel in order to flesh out who we really are. We treat it like we need the gospel plus our sexuality, or we need the gospel plus our race or our heritage. We need the gospel plus our, our political affiliation. But none of those things add to your identity. The burden of identity should be placed on Christ freely and with abandon because he is the only one strong enough to give us a perfect identity. No, not perfect cookie cutter. When God gives you a new identity in Jesus, your identity is perfectly unique and perfectly unified with your brothers and sisters. God can do that at the same time with Jesus. If you idolize things like your profession or your family status or your race, heritage, your social status, all you're doing is setting yourself up to destruction. All of those things, they can and will, they absolutely will fail you. They can't define who you are. It can be temporary, but you can be fired. You can lose your career. Your spouse can leave you. You could morally fail and fall from grace socially. Like, none of those things are immutable. Your race and heritage, if you think that's immutable, all it takes is one bad 23andMe test, and that's going to break down a lot of assumptions you have about yourself. Or, if you're like the Israelites in Exodus, you may let your oppressor or oppression or your pain define you. You may let your past trauma define you. Habitual sin, maybe you just see yourself as an addict. You may see yourself as just another failure. Maybe you're so social justice-minded that you see oppression in every shadow. None of those things 
can bear the weight of your identity. Your pain does not define you any longer when Jesus finds you. So if that's you, if that's you today, if you find your very identity in your pain or your trauma, please know that Jesus offers you mercy and healing. He's a tender king. He humbles himself. He will reach down. He will pick up your eyes. He will cast them on himself. And he will give you the grace that you need. If you're, this is for somebody very specific today that I don't know, but if you're being abused, maybe even in God's name, that's not Jesus. Jesus will heal you from that. You don't need to be your abuse anymore. You don't have to be found in that. You can be found in Christ Jesus. Church, Jesus is the only thing that will never fail you. Jesus reaches down and he picks up both the man that finds his identity in his career and he picks up the 14-year-old girl that only knows how to see herself through the lens of her abuse. He picks them up and he gives them the strength to place their burdens on himself. So when you find yourself in Christ, the old identity we had, honestly, it just fails to measure up anymore. And because our new identity is found in Christ, our great in-Christness, please remember that term, our in-Christness, unifies us and brings us all together. The old social barriers, they lose their power in the church. There's no longer wealthy or poor. There's no longer oppressed and oppressor. Life's no longer defined by being black or white, liberal, conservative. There is only found in Christ justified and loved. That's the joy we have before us today. That will empower you to and embolden you to make bridges to people that you might not normally form relationships with. Finding yourself in Christ will foster community with God's children completely dissociated with how much they look and act just like you. You can now look to the person across the aisle and you can have assurance that both you, if you are found in Christ, and they have complete unity in your Savior Jesus. Only Jesus can define you fully, completely, and perfectly. So what does this say about us, that we keep trying to go back to our old masters? Something very dangerous happens when instead of embracing our new identity... We try to tack God onto our old identity. And this is when we start doing damage in Jesus' name. If you try to find your identity in your spouse and you tack God onto it, you're going to rule over your spouse with an iron thumb and you're going to claim your God-given rights to her body. If you try to tack shoehorn in God to your patriotism, the nation of your birth, you run real danger of becoming a nationalist that claims domination over others' behavior and morality in God's name. And then in a cruel twist of irony, you're going to say it's God's will. Jesus is better than that. Jesus frees us from that. Jesus gives us a new identity in him. You and I are constantly, we are always in danger of becoming what Paul David Tripp, pastor, calls identity amnesiacs. I like that a lot. That's very helpful. Because if, if we're not constantly reorienting our lives to look to Jesus, then simply we just start to look away from him. 
new job expectations, uh, family responsibilities, social obligations, those things will crop up. And they will just degree by degree slowly point your spiritual rudder away from Jesus. And before long, you're going to be pointing in a completely different direction. It's time, if it's time to just chip away at these facades of false identities that we have, honestly, there's no greater time than now. All these vain things that we talked about today, they're going to offer you promises that they just can't keep. You'll never be fulfilled by them. But it's so, it's church, it's so easy to go back to them time and time again. Why is that? There is, listen to this, there is comfort in the safety of familiarity. There is comfort in the safety of familiarity. The reason we go back to licking the table scraps off the floor, instead of just getting up and sitting at our Father's table with our co-heir Jesus, is because we're so familiar with the table scraps of this fallen identities we have. It feels safe. It's because we are unfamiliar with Jesus, it makes our faith so hard to swallow sometimes. Practically, I just would ask you to look inward. What are you consuming? What fills your eyes and ears and your hearts on any given day? I think if we all looked at our podcast feed, we would probably find our identity. You can quote me on that. I'm not, so, to be serious, I'm not saying you can only watch Pure Flix or VidAngel or whatever it's called. I'm not saying that you can only read dead theologians. But if the things you consume contribute more to your identity than your in-Christness, then they are idols. The Egyptians suffer all ten of these plagues. The Israelites suffer many of them because they were, by and large, unfamiliar with Yahweh. They weren't worshiping him. But in this, God is extending his sovereignty to both Israel and Egypt with this plague of swarming flies, insects. But God's sovereignty manifests itself very differently for whom God calls his own. This separation of Israel and Egypt is important for us to understand the significance of this plague of swarming flies. So if you've been following along with this sermon series... What we've come to know about the plagues is that God is using the plagues to attack specific gods in the Egyptian pantheon. God is attacking them because the the, the people of Egypt are just throwing their worship away to these false gods and dark powers, and God is worthy of that worship. Uh, To be honest, this one was a little harder to nail down because some of the translations, as we talked about a little earlier, They say they're a swarm of flies. Some of them say uh, beetles, potentially. There could be some connection to beetles, of course. The scarab beetle or the dung beetle, uh, it's a very common motif in Egyptian mythology. Lots of gods have ties to the imagery. I don't think that's what God's doing here. If it were very specifically flies, some of you may find this interesting. Here's a name you're likely familiar with. Uh, Beelzebub. Beelzebub is an Egyptian god, and his name translates literally to Lord of the Flies. In Luke's gospel, his name is referred to as Beelzebul, and he is called the Prince of Demons. And it's clear that he is a very powerful tool of Satan used to lead the Egyptians astray. 
His, perfect, his purpose, practically, in Egyptian mythology was he protected the Egyptian people from flies. So there is a good case for God to be attacking Beelzebub in this plague. But, as we talked about earlier, it's not really the flies in and of themselves that's important. It's not, he's, God's not using flies to proclaim his lordship. But rather, it's what they're doing. Namely, they're swarming the Egyptian people solely. They're biting them, harming them aggressively, and they're ruining their land. The best argument I have is for the goddess Watchet. Watchet is the goddess protector of northern Egypt, as well as she is seen as the protector of Pharaoh herself. So let's just paint a picture, run through all the list of all the stuff that's happened today. Moses appears before Pharaoh as God's ambassador. He's speaking with God's authority. He tells Pharaoh that God will set apart his people from the Egyptians and then send a vicious swarm of flies to attack the Egyptians. And God's going to do it on his timing, independent of Moses. The flies brutally ravage the landscape and the Egyptians' people's own bodies. Even Pharaoh himself is not safe. Pharaoh was sure that his profane gods would protect him and his people. He worshipped the safety that the dark powers over Egypt allegedly provided. But Yahweh set apart his people and kept only them safe and attacked Pharaoh and the Egyptians with swarms of flies that they might know that he alone is God. And when he does this, what he does is he turns the eye of every Israelite back to himself, and he reminds them that he alone is their refuge. Church, if we are found in Jesus, that is the only safety we are ever promised, but in fact, that's the only safety that we ever need. But in our culture today, much like the Egyptians in Moses' days, uh, we worship the idol of safety as one of the most powerful sources of identity that we have. Likely for everyone in here, the thought of losing our physical well-being, it should set us on edge. Like, that's correct. That's right. We should probably be set on edge if we know that our physical safety is on the line. I'm not trying to demonize that. But I know that we find our identity in our safety very strongly because this week, not to be dramatic, I'm going to be dramatic, not to be dramatic, I actually was forced to come face to face with my mortality. So this week I was driving around. This is a silly story. I just want you to be aware. This is real. This did happen this week. I was driving my car. Uh, If you guys know anything about my car, I've told a couple of stories about it. It's treated me very well, but I have not returned the favor at all. I let, I let it sit all winter. <laughs> I just let it sit in the driveway, and like it barely starts now, and the belts squeal. And uh, I don't think it's related to that, but right now I don't, <laughs> I don't have any turn signals. <laughs> so there's a very long way to tell you that Tuesday I'm sitting at the light. My elbow's hanging out the window. I'm blasting my tunes, uh, and I have to keep my arm at the window because I've got to do this number. Do you guys remember that? I took driver's ed, we learned it in one day, and we haven't used it since. It's some real old-world survival techniques that I'm using here. So I'm sitting at the light, right? I'm in midtown Anchorage, and I just hear somebody yelling, which is par for the course. So I ignore it for a sec. But after a couple seconds, I realize I don't hear somebody yelling. I hear somebody yelling at me. Here we go. Okay. 
So I turn down my music. I look up and I'm like, I'm the first in line. Unwritten rule of the road is if you're at the green light, you've got to deal with whatever wisdom life's going to throw it your way. I turn off my music. I didn't know what to say. Like, this guy's just sitting on a wall yelling at me. I go, yeah, man, what's up? <laughs> this man turns to me and says the worst two words you can shout at somebody in traffic. He goes, you're next. <laughs> it's not ominous at all. I didn't know what to say. I just went, cool, man. He's got more for me, right? He didn't let it stand there. This great sage of the holiday parking lot, he's got more wisdom for me. He says, and this is the way he said it. I'm, not, I'm really not hemming this up. He turns to me and he goes, enjoy it while you can because you might not wake up tomorrow. What? <laughs> Which, so technically, yes. Contextually is the issue here, I think. There are places you do and don't want to hear that, right? In a sermon? Okay, absolutely. Uh, motivational speaker. That's right. We should live our day to the fullest. Uh, hospital. Hmm. <laughs> yes, but all, all out. So at the corner of Spinard in Minnesota, <laughs> I don't want to hear that. <laughs> this is, okay, so this is probably my point in the day at which I can share some hope with this guy, you know, give him the surety of Jesus. I don't do that because my light turns green and I panic and I go, you too, and, I, and I'm gone. I ghosted him. That was it. That was scary. I, every car that merged on, I was like, huh? I don't know. What does he know that I don't? There, I know that plenty of us are adventure seekers. Okay, I'm sorry. Plenty of you are adventure seekers. I'm not. That's not me. Uh, but for the most part, like every decision we make, we live in the safest way possible. That's pretty normal. It's also not spiritually evil. But when we make idols of physical safety and comfort, what we do is we steal glory and worship from our refuge and strength, Christ Jesus. The idolatry of safety replaces the worship of King Jesus by putting our physical needs above his kingdom. And when our faith is misplaced in safety, our primary motivator of worshiping Jesus, it becomes secondary to the quality of life that we believe we are afforded in him. But if we rest in our new identity, Jesus delivers us from fear. Safety and fear, that's just two halves of the same coin. Contextually for us today, they're both used as motivators. We hear it all the time. Uh, I think the difference is that safety is used to motivate you toward something, and fear is used to motivate you away from something, very simply. Like safety and protection, those things are dangled in front of you when you're trying to buy the nicest minivan for your family. That makes sense. You should pay attention to the crash test rating. But fear is that insidious second face of safety that's going to tell you to do things that are gospel void for the sake of self-preservation. I do, so I, I want to make sure to talk about a good portion of our church body today. We have many members of True North Church that are in the military. If you're in the military, as far as my brain understands it, you are literally charged with keeping our nation safe. You're the front lines and you're the, the last reserves. 
that keeps us away from physical harm from foreign entities. I want to first and foremost say that I really want you to keep doing that. Because <laughs> if you stop doing that, I got to do it. And I can't even protect my car from getting so cold that it won't start. And I have a garage. <laughs> yeah, now you get it. This is my fault. Listen, defending those in need from bodily harm, that's not an idolatry issue. That is a neutral issue. But if you find your identity primarily in your military service and not as a child of the living God, that is an idolatry issue. Instead, please let your in-Christness fuel your desire to defend the dignity and safety of your fellow image bearers. That's a good thing. If you and I idolize safety over Jesus, it's just going to leave us malnourished and frail and broken Christians. We won't seek to be aggressively generous. We're going to start to stay within our means. We're going to find excuses to give the bare minimum. We're going to stay in neighborhoods full of people that look and act exactly like us. If our safety is our first concern, we will enact social policies to preserve what we feel that we have earned, but deny our fellow image bearers that very same dignity that we expect God to provide for ourselves. The idolatry of safety leads us to fearing anything that threatens our own sovereignty over our finite kingdoms of self, our sandcastles. The great irony, the great irony is that when we find our identity in our own safety before we find our identity in Christ, that puts us in the most dangerous place possible. Yet if we are found in Christ, Jesus delivers us from fear. Pharaoh trusted in his own power above all else, and that made him completely vulnerable to God's wrath. Let's read the last part of our passage today. Let's look back to Exodus 8. It'll be on the screen for you. We're going to start in verse 25. Exodus 8, 25 says this. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So now Pharaoh realizes that he can't win, so he tries to get what he wants from God himself. 
He petitions God through Moses to keep himself safe from harm. And he, he does that successfully. God does allow that. But at every point in the conversation, he's trying to maneuver things to benefit himself the most and to sacrifice the absolute least, which is just so familiar to how we treat Jesus every day. Honestly, how often do we pray in Jesus' name that his will be done and for his blessings to rain down on us and the people that we love, but we never do more than inconvenience ourselves for the sake of Christ? Yeah, we teach our kids to be generous, but only so far as you can afford it, which is, I argue, not generous at all. It's as if Jesus didn't humble himself and give his very human life for people that honestly wouldn't even appreciate it. We're no di- <laughs> Maybe I can't speak for you, but I think I can. I don't think we're any different from Pharaoh. We still wrestle with Jesus for lordship over our own lives every day. Pharaoh won't, he won't let them get too far away. He offers the bare minimum, and Moses totally catches on to this, twice. <laughs> Moses knows that the people of God will be beaten and stoned if they sacrifice to the living God in full view of the Egyptians. So Moses convinces Pharaoh to let them go further into the wilderness. But when Pharaoh tries to, but when Pharaoh still tries, excuse me, to put everything on his own terms, I mean, Moses just straight up calls him a cheat, which is very bold to the most powerful man in the nation. But Moses knew that his physical safety was not the greatest danger. The greatest threat to both Egypt and Israel right now is Yahweh himself. An unrepentant, unregenerate, idol factory heart leaves us on the receiving end of God's wrath. And when we are not found in Christ, that is not where you want to be. Earlier we said that God was demonstrating his sovereignty over both peoples. I think that's really important to us because at this point in the narrative, Israel has largely forgotten Yahweh and they're, they're not worshiping him. So the natural question to pose is why God would choose to assault the Egyptians and spare Israel. It's not just because the Egyptians worshiped profane gods. We see time and time again in scripture that whenever Israel is subject to another nation, they start worshiping those gods and following their customs. So what does God see in Israel that he doesn't see in Egypt? Well, in a word, nothing. It's not something that God sees within Israel, but rather the very character of God himself. God is faithful, and he named the Israelites as his own, and he keeps his word. He always does, and he always will. If you would turn with me, we're going to end today in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, we see that Jesus is calling, he's commissioning his 12 disciples into ministry. He's blessing them with the authority to do things like heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to just preach the word. Jesus says this to his disciples in verse 24 of Matthew 10. He's talking about foreign gods and things that they're afraid of at this point. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, there's that name again, how much more will they malign those of God's household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that it will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all all numbered. Fear not, therefore, You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus delivers us from fear. Not by... Now, by promising us that we never have to worry about anything again, he doesn't tell us that we're not going to be harmed, but he draws us into deeper understanding and deeper communion with the Father. If Jesus calls you his own, you no longer have to fear for your body because you know that your soul is secure. And at this point, what else could even harm you? God the Father does not allow a single bird to fall from the sky without his consent. And Jesus' blood pays for our adoption into our Father's family. How much more, church, our Father cares for us than any other creature, so much so that he made us in his image. God the Father sets his people apart from Egypt and unleashes his wrath on those who hold his children hostage. And even God's wrath truly is a reminder of his love for us, a perfect God with no wrath, is unjust, and it is not a perfect God. Church, even with God's wrath on display, we are able to taste the sweetness of his grace and mercy. So, I ask you today, I implore you, if you feel God's call in your life, but you're afraid to just lose the things that are most precious to you, or if you're worried that you're just going to become so irrelevant to the culture around you, please flee that illusion of safety. This world can only offer you a pale imitation of the refuge that Jesus offers. Whatever you think you have in this world, it's, it's, it's not enough. Your career can't keep you safe. Your favorite politician, he cannot keep you safe. Your family and your friends, your social circle, those things can't save your soul. Jesus promises us that even though our body be destroyed, our soul will never be cast out if we find our identity in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, give us the strength to find our identity in Christ Jesus. All the vain things that charm me most God, will we sacrifice to you? Father, I'm reminded how fortuitous it was that we sang the songs that we sang today because we got to sing of your faithfulness, of being fettered to you, chained to you, of finding ourselves in you, and to sing your praises that our hope is found in Christ alone. 
God, I ask that you would take this final song as a song of worship to you and you would be honored and glorified. Heavenly Father, we love you. I pray that we take this to heart and we take this seriously. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.